This is Inside the Writer's Head with Kurt Dynan. He is the Library Foundation of Cincinnati and Hamilton County's 2016-2017 Writer-in-Residence. The Library Foundation's Writer-in-Residence program promotes writing, literacy, and creativity in our community, all while furthering the library's mission of connecting people with the world of ideas and information. Our podcast starts now. Hi, this is Kurt Dynan, the Cincinnati Public Library's Writer-in-Residence with another author interview this month on Inside the Writer's Head. Today, I'm talking with Mindy McGinnis, former librarian and one of the most critically acclaimed writers working in young adult today. She debuted in 2013 with the post-apocalyptic novel, Not a Drop to Drink, followed by its sequel, then went on to release A Madness So Discreet, which last year won an Edgar Award. Her most recent release, Female of the Species, was my favorite novel of 2016 and should be absolute required reading by every teenager in every high school in this country. And to top it all off, her blog, Writer, Writer, Pants on Fire, Fire, is a must-read, especially for any aspiring writer. So basically, Mindy McGinnis is prolific, extremely giving, and she takes kickboxing lessons so she could probably beat you up too. Welcome, Mindy. Hi. You made me sound really cool. And now I feel like I have to make sure I say smart things, so I'm going to be super focused. Okay, excellent. So... uh, since this is a public a podcast for the Cincinnati Public Library, and you were a librarian for 15 years, right? That's correct. Uh, I figure we should start there. Sure. Um, how did be, being a librarian influence your writing? Good question. So I started writing when I was in college, and I failed at writing for about 10 years. I have a degree in English literature and a degree in religion. I do not have a degree in uh, teaching. I don't have a teaching certificate. I don't have a teaching license. I am uniquely unqualified to teach due to my complete lack of patience or understanding. If someone doesn't understand a concept the way I understand it, I am incapable of breaking it down a different way. That's a completely different type of intelligence than what I have. So so I have always been highly aware of uh, the unique intelligence of teachers, and I don't have that. So I graduated with, uh, as I said, two degrees, uh, English and religion, and uh, completely unemployable. The only thing I was good at was dissecting episodes of the TV show Lost, which I was really good at, but it doesn't make any money. So the high school that I graduated from, which is Cardington, it's a tiny little rural school in Cardington, Ohio. My sister is the head of the English department there. And the job at the high school library opened up, the aides position opened up, and she said, hey, you should apply because you don't really have anything going for you right now. I was working in retail. And I said, yeah, good idea. So I applied. I got the job. And I just uh, quit this past summer. I was there for 15 years. So I'd been working for about two years, still writing, always with the goal of I'm going to be published one day. And... Not really with anything other than my own confidence that that was the case. I honestly was not talented in any way while I was doing this writing. There's a particular uh, blind spot that I had, which we can talk about later. But 
I decided that I was going to write YA because, and this is a terribly selfish, selfish reason, but when you're writing, you need to write, uh, you need an agent if you want to be successful with a traditional publishing career. And to get an agent, you have to write what's called a query letter and you have to make yourself sound interesting and the book sound like the most amazing uh, original, fantastic book that's ever been written, which is very difficult. But the thing that always tripped me up the most was a thing called the bio and in which you talked about your qualifications for writing this book, whether it be it through your uh, degrees or your ordinary day-to-day life. And I had nothing. And so suddenly I decided I should write YA because I can write Mindy McGinnis is a librarian in a high school where she spends 40 hours a week with her target audience and immersed in the market. I'm like, oh, that's perfect. So that was my incredibly selfish decision to start writing YA. So, you know, people ask me why YA? And I'm like, well, here's the reason why it started. It has changed since then. Well, right. I mean, <laughs> it's it's the perfect pedigree, though, right? Yeah, I mean, it is. It is. And so many, so many writers of YA are either teachers like yourself or librarians like me that work with teens. And I think that it keeps us young in a lot of ways. I feel that I definitely have a vocabulary that I would not have if I didn't work in the high schools. Um, And I don't just mean the four-letter words. I mean a lot of different things. Um, I end up explaining a lot of things to my boyfriend, and he doesn't understand, uh, like the dab. Had to explain that the other day. So, you know, it's uh, it keeps me young, and it keeps me in tune with reality in a lot of ways. You know, you said in the intro, and I really appreciate it, uh, that all teenagers should read The Female Species, but I really think that parents of teenagers and people that work with them would uh, do well to do so as well. Not only because it would totally up my sales, but because I think it offers a you know an insight into what their lives are actually like. And they're not pretty in so many ways. They're just not pretty. And we're going to talk about that book in a little bit. Cool. I mean, because I, I completely agree um, that I left, and, and I was wrong in leaving that out. Like everybody should read that, especially parents too. <laughs> yeah, what's wrong um, with you? Everyone should read my book. <laughs> darn it. Um, but like you said, you're now you're writing full time. I am. Um, has it, has it been hard adapting to that change? Is there added pressure? Mm. Uh, I wish there was more pressure to be honest with you. I, everyone always says, how do you, um, deal with deadlines? And the answer is that I welcome them because if you don't tell me to do something, then more than likely I will not. I am not the kind of person that writes every day. I do not wake up in the morning and say, oh, I have this amazing thing that I need to get out of my head and onto paper and it must be shared. That doesn't happen to me. I'm not that kind of a writer. I have to have a deadline saying, you better write a book or you're going to starve to death. And so I need that in order to make me move. And coming from an entirely structured life, because I was living on the school system life, summers off, you're working nine months out of the year, since I was five. I went from kindergarten all the way through college to like maybe a six-month break after college, and then boom, right into the high school schedule again. And to suddenly, at the age of 37, to not have a schedule anymore, it's actually been difficult. It has been difficult to say to myself, you know what? You should get out of bed before a particular time. I'm not going to share the time. It's like, you should do this. You should do that. And 
self-control in other areas of my life, I'm really good at. Like I work out three to four times a week. Um, I'm I'm pretty good about self-control with, you know, meal portions and stuff like that. But man, it's just making yourself right is, I think, one of the hardest things. Yeah, I love that line that says writers can, you know, are like experts at finding reasons not to write. Yeah, I'm awesome at it. <laughs> but see, what I like about what you just said and kind of what your blog does is in, 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 you know, when I took this position, one of the things I said I wanted to do is kind of demystify the writing process, mm-hmm. um, you know, for, for aspiring writers to understand that writing a novel is an accomplishable goal. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think your blog does a good job kind of pushing that idea. Yes. Thank uh, you. I think you've been keeping it. I mean, I was looking at it today, like you've, you've had that blog going for like six years. Yeah. Um, yes, I have. You know, you you give a lot of advice. You you do that great critiquing of query letters. Mm-hmm. Um, your author interviews are great. I mean, you're posting all the time, yes. which has to require a lot of time along with your novel writing. Like, why are you so, like, why are you so dedicated to that? Like, why are that- you so interested in helping, like, up and coming writers when, when a lot of people aren't? Yeah. Um, well, because the simple truth is that when I was trying to get published, I had so many questions and you mentioned my interviews that I do with published authors. Those are my questions. Those are the questions I had when I was an aspiring author that I always thought, man, I wish I could just sit down with a published author. They didn't have to be famous, just someone that knows the process. I wish I could sit down with them and ask them my questions so that I understand because it is in many ways, it's a business and it is a very structured business And if you do not know the ins and outs of it, you will not succeed. And people don't like to hear that. One of the reasons it took me 10 years to get published was because I didn't want to hear that. I wanted to be the writer in their tower that wrote their novels and then threw them out the window. And, you know, they floated down and someone picked them up and said it was amazing. And and then you got published and you didn't do you didn't have to learn the market. You didn't have to understand trends. You didn't have to know what was selling and not selling. You didn't have to write a synopsis for the love of God. So, you know, it's like, I didn't want to do those things. I didn't want to do the work. I just wanted the reward. And I'll, I will happily tell you, and I think most published authors would agree that so much of being a writer has nothing to do with writing. It has nothing to do with writing. It has to do with knowing the industry, knowing the business, not necessarily knowing people, I think that's an important thing to to really strike on. I am a farmer's daughter. My dad was the first person in my family to go to college. Everyone in my family were farmers, straight, all the way back to the 1700s. And that's what we do. We are not writers. We are farmers. And I did not have connections in publishing or in anything other than if I wanted to buy a big bag of cornmeal. Like, those were my connections. So, you know, I... I like to point that out to people, to all aspiring writers, but I like to tell teenagers that too. I try to get into rural schools. I'm from a tiny place. So I think it's important for anyone to be aware that it's not who you know and it's not where you're from. So when it comes to the giving back, it's that's kind of part of where I came from as literally a no one from nowhere. That's who I was. And I didn't have access to anyone to ask these questions to. And 
I guess maybe it's a karma move. I don't know. It's just, I feel like it's important. And I do, it's, it's an enormous amount of time, an enormous amount of time that I put into the blog. And of course it's entirely, I don't make any money off that. That's completely, you know, altruistic. And every, every year for the past, maybe two or three years, I thought, you know, it might be time to pull the plug on that because you're putting a lot of effort into this and you are your own business and you are basically, uh, doing pro bono work there. And anytime I have that thought, it never fails. I get an email from someone who says, I just, you, you, uh, critiqued my query in 2012. And I just wanted to tell you that I got an agent or the book that you looked at didn't make it, but you helped me. And now I'm getting published or even just people that are like, thank you for running this blog. I appreciate it so much. And so I'm just like, okay, there's your little kick in the butt, Mindy. You have to keep doing it. And so I keep doing it and I do enjoy it too. Um, I'm actually getting ready to start a new avenue, a new arm of the blog. There will be hopefully in the near future, a writer, writer, pants on fire podcast. It's in the works. I just have to, now that we figured out Zencaster, hopefully I will, that's, that's an upcoming thing. So I want to not only keep it going, but to keep it up to date with the times and have a podcast. So we'll see. Well, what, when, when you were trying to learn all of that stuff, do you remember anything like specific like, yes, that a absolutely. writer helped you with that like really opened your eyes? Yes, absolutely. I use the website called Agent Query Connect. A-G-E-N-T-Q-U-E-R-Y-C-O-N-N-E-C-T. Agent Query Connect. And there is, oh, .com. And there is, it is a database for accessing uh, information about agents, what their query requirements are, their, what they're looking for, what they represent, what they are, whether or not they're even open to queries right now, and of course their contact information. But there is also a forum for aspiring writers and Many of those exist, but AQC was the one that I gravitated towards because it was the most welcome. It was the most open. And there were people there who were public, traditionally published authors that were hanging out in the forums, helping people out. And I met my critique partner there. Uh, my critique partner is R.C. Lewis. She is a sci-fi writer. And we met along with Marcy Kate Connolly, who writes middle grade for Harper and Harper Collins. And the three of us met in 2010 on AQC and we all became critique partners. And now all three of us are traditionally published. Uh, Marcy Kate and I through Harper Collins and RC Lewis through Disney Hyperion. So, you know, we were all, none of us knew anything about anything. And through other people who were a few steps ahead of us, They were agented. Some of them were published, helping us and us helping each other with the actual craft of writing. I mean, I can honestly say if it wasn't for the AQC forums, I would not be published. I would still be cranking out. Oh, my God. I mean, I wrote a query letter that was two pages long. You don't do that. That is you do not do that. You know, and those were the queries I was sending out. And that's why I failed. That's why I failed for so long. And I credit AQC and the community there with a lot of my success. So if you're an inspiring writer, always hit up AQC. Yeah. It's, I think a big part of most writers success they'll tell you is people they met along the way. 
mm-hmm. you know, other people kind of on the journey, you know, they're on the road at the same time. Yes. They're in kind of the same spot. Um, some of my best friends now are just people I met at workshops, you know, and who, who helped me along. I remember my first workshop, a, a guy pulled me aside. He's still one of my best friends. And he was like, you're, you're good at this, but I really have to like help you. He's like, <laughs> you, you really don't understand a lot of what's going on, do you? And I'm like, no, I just wrote this stuff. He goes, right. And I, I think that's right. so essential. Mm-hmm. Well, so you had the talent, but you didn't have the craft. Oh, right. Yeah. I mean, the raw, like I had the raw talent at that yeah. point. That's where that's where yeah. I was, too. But I wouldn't even. Oh, man, I, I don't even want to credit myself with raw talent because I have read my early manuscripts and they're oh gosh. They're pretty oh, bad. Yeah, mine are, too. But I can kind of see a glimmer there. Yeah, that I, can type see, of thing. I can see. Um, like what oh, it's going to become. Yes. Yes. There's a glimmer of hope. It's a good way to put it. <laughs> so let's play learn from my mistakes. Yeah, that's exactly how I feel about the blog and any tweet I respond to. Please listen to me. I know what I'm doing because I messed up first. Right. And a minute ago, you mentioned um, a blind spot mm-hmm. that you had that made you kind of continually fail for years. What What was that? Oh, ego. It was ego. I mean, I have no problem admitting that because, I mean, weirdly, the more successful I get, the more modest I become. And... I don't have an answer for why that is, but I can tell you that when I was hacking out a novel, a very, very bad novel, my sophomore year in my dorm, I was typing that thing thinking Pulitzer, you know? I mean, I really thought that I was stunning and bringing something amazing and new to the universe. And it's dreck. It's drivel. It's it's regurgitated crap. I've read it. It's terrible. Um but I didn't see that. And, and that was a huge, that was a huge blind spot. Uh, ego is a huge blind spot. The best writers I know are incredibly modest. Most of the writers that I come across that cannot receive criticism are really poor writers. And they are not successful because they cannot accept criticism. And that's a big part. Um, it wasn't that I couldn't accept criticism necessarily as my blind spot, but the blind spot of of just wanting to be a producer of stunning works of art. Right. And not not seeing that that is a lovely thing, but there is a business that gets that stunning work of art out into the world, and you must be a cog in that machine in order to make it happen. And also being aware that your stunning work of art is not your first draft. So right. important to realize that. Well, I I think there's like a weird contrast, though. I think you have to almost have that ego when you start. I agree. Because, I mean, what's more egotistical than not only like I've written something that you should pay me for <laughs> and everybody should read like, mm-hmm. but that can get you started. Mm-hmm. But once you start revising and I, you know, I, I impress this on my students like right away in creative writing. It's like your words are not holy text. Yeah. Like the universe did not open up and and shine down upon you, and there are those writers out there who can't get past that. And That's and right. you you did right. I had uh, to. You know any anyone who's published and has been successful at it um, understands. Mm-hmm. You know it's like no anything I write can easily be rewritten and fixed. Agreed. And anything I have written that is published, I don't read my finished copies of my books because I know that I will read them and find something and think. 
Oh, could have done yes. that better. Yes. So I don't read them. I don't read my books. I, I have a hard time. Like whenever I've had to do readings, reading the first chapter aloud, oh God, yes, it's like painful. I sit there and self-edit as I'm reading it. <laughs> I do it too. I do it too. There's a line in that opening chapter that every time I read it just makes me cringe. And mm-hmm. I just want to, I just want to stop and raise my hand and go, I'm, I'm sorry for that line. Can let's just pretend, <laughs> let's just pretend that's not there. Yeah. I'm, um, I'm completely with you on that. Whenever I do a reading and I don't do them that often because it makes me feel, I don't know. It just makes you feel like someone asked you to take off your underwear or something. I don't know. It's, <laughs> right. Like, I don't want to do that in public. Yeah. Um, and I will, of course, if anyone asks me to, I'm like, yeah, sure. The, reading not the underwear but um so it's one of those things that you do as you are reading out loud you self-critique and it's a published book and it cannot be changed um so yeah it's 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 a difficult nothing is ever done that's one of the questions that i get often from aspiring writers is how do you know you're done and you are never done no no uh (laughs) and i like that idea I, I'm going to have to go to that is I should never open anything I've written before. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I'll do it just to remind myself I can do it. Oh, that's a great. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> you know, you need to have that when you're going, God, I can't do this. And you're like, I've done it before. Right. And then, you yes. go, okay, I've done it before. Yes. But you're exactly right. You just, it's never finished. It's never anything. It's never going to be exactly what you want it to be. No, it never will be because there's that transmission between your brain and the paper or the laptop, however you write, that, uh, you know, there's a chasm there. There's an abyss. It can't, yes. it cannot translate perfectly and it never will. And um, I believe artists uh, feel the same way and musicians I know for sure do. I remember, is that a, oh, I'm not going to be able to come up with it. I feel like there is a scene, is there a scene in Amadeus where he's just screaming that that it's wrong, it's wrong, it's wrong. It's glorious, beautiful music. And he's like, no, this is terrible. And it's just like, yeah, that's how I feel (laughs) too. I'm with you. (laughs) Right. And then you have to get to that point where you realize other people aren't going to read it 10 times like you've read it 10 times. And you're like, no, they're going to see this for the first time and they're going to be happy with it. Yes. And you also have to allow them the space to create it to experience it their way in their head. Right. You have to allow your reader that freedom because often I think about I'm controlling too hard when I look at the text, um, especially with character movement, which I'm getting to the point in my writing where I want to just do away with it because I am trying to dictate a visual scene and I need to trust my reader to sh- you know, imagine for themselves instead of me showing them the movements of my character, they know they're alive. They know they aren't mannequins in a window. They know they're moving. So I think um, as I continue to evolve as a writer to give my reader that freedom and to realize that they're going to interpret my work and therefore the point of me getting it perfectly translated from my brain to paper to page is essentially pointless because no one else is going to see what I see and what I'm trying to convey. So I need to let that go a little. Yeah. They'll fill in the gaps. Yes. It's I'm, I'm terrible at that. Yeah. It's I, a hard I thing to let go. Everything. 
Yes, I'll bet it is. This is what they're wearing, and this is what they look like. And right. this is how she scratched her head while she was talking. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. No. Uh, so we are talking about reading aloud. Um, mm-hmm. And this is a good segue into Female of the Species, because okay. uh, I have read the first chapter of that book to to my students before, uh, especially in my reading class. Cool. And um, after I read them that first chapter, uh, no joke, the next day, I'll bet 10 kids had bought that book. Nice. Keep doing um, it. <laughs> I mean, it, absolutely. Because it's such a great first chapter. Thank you. Um, it's such a powerful first chapter. And I think the listeners, I, I want them to know like what that book is. So can you give them like a quick overview of that novel and kind of sure. how it came came to be? Sure. Um, ironically, the novel I was speaking about earlier that I cracked out my sophomore year in my dorm was The Female of the Species. The version that I wrote back in 1998 99 was so horrible that it bears no relation whatsoever to the book that is on the shelves now, except for the title. That is it. And basically, the genesis of that book was that I had gone to college and I grew up without cable. I grew up without air conditioning or an Atari or, you know, anything like that. So I go to college and suddenly I still didn't have air conditioning. I mean, wow. But I had cable TV and I had cable channels and I just was lost for two weeks watching TV. But one of the things that I watched was um, a true crime. I don't know if there was a run on something. I don't even know what channel I was watching, but there were a bunch of true crime shows back to back to back. And I can't even remember the title of the show or anything about the uh, program, except for the fact that it was set in a very small town. It was a true story about a teenage girl who had been abducted, raped, murdered, and her body left in the woods. And it had decomposed to such an extent that when they found her, there was no physical evidence that could be brought against the perpetrator. But it was a tiny town, and everyone pretty much knew who did it. Like, it was common knowledge that the, you know, the guy that everyone thinks did it probably did it, but he's not going to be pers- he's not going to be brought to justice through the traditional paths for this. And I was, first of all, naive enough to be stunned that there was a miscarriage of justice, but I was also watching this show because they identified the town. They talked to people, you know, in the streets, who do you think killed this girl? And they would say, oh, and his name. And this was back when the internet was a new thing. And so I was like, oh my gosh, if I was really convinced that this man committed this crime and was going to get away with it, I could... Use Google, find this town, go there, find this guy, and kill him. And then I thought, I should stop watching cable TV right now. And, but at the same time, I was like, okay, bad reality move, great fiction. And so that was the kernel for what became the female species in which the younger sister of, it's a completely fictionalized, of course, version of what sparked that story, but... Alex Croft, who is my main character, is about 14, I believe, when her older sister is raped and murdered. And everyone knows who did it because it's a small town, but it cannot be brought to justice through the court system because of lack of physical evidence. And she says, "Okay, screw that. No. And she kills him. That's in the first chapter. And then the rest in chapter of chapter one. Yeah, yeah. She kills him <laughs> in chapter one. Uh, yes. And so that's, the, and I always am like, and that's the beginning of the book. Yes. And then the rest of the book, of course, 
takes place over her senior year, and um, Alex is a character who has... She's very aware. She's not a psychopath because she cares too much, she says at one point in the book. Her anger has been activated. Her rage has been tapped. And she is aware that she is a dangerous human being and has voluntarily cut herself off from other people. And then at the beginning of her senior year, this begins to change. She's being brought into society. She has friends. She has a boyfriend. And by the simple act of being brought back into a social circle, she ends up in situations that activate that rage again. And there are times she cannot control it. And so, you know, hilarity ensues. (laughs) It's such an excellent excellent book and like i said and like you added like it it would be it's great for all teenagers um it it would just especially like teenage boys Mm -hmm. i think just there there's a perspective there that they wouldn't understand Mm -hmm. um that that novel could help them with and and you're clearly and and you can correct me if i'm wrong, wrong here i mean you use that novel to comment on a lot of like ills in society you see am i am i correct in saying that oh for sure definitely um did you set out with that in mind um not necessarily because i never wanted to be didactic but it it's hard not to let my experience as a female seep into it and i have also it was very important to me because i am often asked if i'm a man hater and i'm not i love men and probably too much. And I have, um, in this book, it was my first time ever writing a male character and a male point of view. And I, it was very important to me to not make him the villain. He is not a bad guy. There is a villain in this story, and it's culture. It's not any one person and it's certainly not a male it's the environment that has created both the women and the men in this story and i think that more than anything is what i am hearing people respond to when i get tweets and texts and facebook messages and so on and so forth i i think that female rage is often sexualized i see it so often in movies in TV shows, anytime a woman is performing any kind of violence, it's usually it's so nicely choreographed. And she's usually not wearing a lot of clothes or she looks pretty awesome while she's doing it. And, uh, you know, violence is ugly. It doesn't matter who's performing it. Violence is an ugly thing. And so I strove to portray that. That no matter who is performing the violence, it is it is pretty atrocious. And um. I think it was important to me to show that, and I I hope I did it right. It's it's hard to say. Well, from the reaction I've had from my students, um, and it's been unanimous. Uh, I think you're definitely getting a strong message across. Like uh, the female readers I had in class really were just like, "This is so dead on," mm-hmm. and yeah, and, I, and that anger, and I and I still I go back to that scene of. And it's almost, it's just a small like mention, but she sees the boy in the, in the gym yes. pretending to hump the basketball Yep, and just a guy would never perceive that 
the way she does. Sure, sure. That's and, true. And I think that's why like boys should read that book. Mm-hmm. There's so many of those things um, throughout the book, big and small. But even that small one, I just thought, yeah, this is a guy screwing around. Like that's something I would have done. I would sure. never have considered that it would be taken that way. Sure. Um, and that rage, it's such a great word for it. You know, somebody who's gone through something like Alex has. Yeah. And, and you know, in a, in a way, it's like, and if that scares a few boys out there, then good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I think um, also the phenomenon of drawing penises everywhere. I, I just, you know, it's one of those things that I will never understand, but that's okay. I'm not supposed to in a lot of ways and that's fine. But, you know, I don't draw vaginas everywhere. I don't have any kind of artistic talent for one thing, but for another, it's like, I, that's a, just a cultural phenomenon I will never understand. <laughs> and it's something that, you know, is also addressed in the book and um, especially I think at the end through um, the character of Branley, who was very nearly violently raped and she has, she comes to school to find a, a penis drawn on her locker. And, you know, that is, there's a symbol of, um, you know, a symbol of power and might and threat in that that I don't necessarily expect no. I expect men to understand that. But, you know, women, it's just the very simple things like, you know, walking from your place of work to your car at night. You just do that. We do it with our keys in our hands. Yeah. Because we don't know what's going to happen. Uh, and guys don't even have to think about it. And I'll tell the listeners to go to your blog and read your um. Oh, thank you. Your post about the uh how it is different for a woman yeah it's different for a woman it's great and uh that um just the the conversation you have with the man i was Mm -hmm. like that's probably what i would have said yeah and then then your response is and i would have been like oh i yeah i didn't think of it that way oh and you wouldn't and it's not and again it's not through any type of just like sexism on your part or anyone else's it's just that you grew up as a male and you don't have to be scared of being raped. Right. Not that men don't get raped. They do. But that's your percentage chance is much smaller. And, um, you know, one of the, another conversation that I had at one point was at my gym. I have a wonderful gym and I love it. And for some reason, this topic had come up and there was an older guy who goes to the gym and I was talking about, uh, just the concept of rape and and why for and I think it may have even been the idea of walking to your car at night. Why this is a different situation for me than it is for you. And I was talking to um, a younger a younger man, and our older man was standing there, and he just got this look on his face, and he said, "I have never even thought about the fact that I could get raped before." And I said, "Yeah, of course you haven't." And it was just stunning for him. The idea, the concept of himself as an individual being raped had never occurred to him up into his 50s, and it never had to. And that's it's just a, a major difference. It's it's an important book. Um, I don't know if that was your, you know, you don't want to be didactic, you're right, when, you, when right. you write something like that. And it's a great story. It's a compelling story. It's characters who um, are, are interesting and you care about, but it's a tough story. Yeah. Um, 
and you, you really nailed it. Uh, well, thank and it's you. by far, it's by far the best book I read last year. I mean, as soon awesome. as I read it, um, and I hope all the listeners go out and hunt that down like immediately. You have another book. I do. You just churn out books all the time. You have a book coming out in April. I, believe, I do. Correct? I do. Uh, April 11th. Quickly, quickly tell us about Given to the Sea. Sure. Um, it is a high fantasy. It's my first stab at fantasy. It is called Given to the Sea. It releases April 11th. And it is set on an island country. And all of the people that live on this particular piece of land believe it is the only land that exists. And all of the sea levels are rising and they are not going to stop. And there are four separate cultures that exist on this particular piece of land. And they all realize around the same time that the seas are rising and they're like, crap, what are we going to do? And the answer to that, of course, is we're just going to have to go kill everyone else. And so that's uh, how the breakdown of the really basic breakdown of the book is that. (laughs) You you write all over the place. I I mean, you had your first couple of novels were post-apocalyptic and then a discreet so... A Madness So Discreet is, mm-hmm. you know, a gothic mystery, and uh, this is fantasy. Like, what's the deal? Like, do you just kind of write whatever inspires you? I do. Um, I read widely. All of my, all of my uh, media experiences are very greatly. Music, art, TV, movies, like, you name it. Um, it's just that I, I am a pro- just consumer of media. I always have been. And so even as a young child, it just didn't matter to me if it was interesting or if it was well done, I was into it. So genre has never occurred to me, honestly. And and that's a, in a lot of ways, it's a really naive thing to say as a writer, but genre doesn't matter to me. What matters to me is the story and genre is secondary. So when I decided I wanted to write a fantasy I knew that it would be tricky as far as marketing, because you're right, I'm all over the place. I wrote uh, post-apocalyptic, historical, contemporary, and now fantasy. And it is a question of whether or not your readership will follow you. And I don't know, because the fantasy has not released yet, so I don't know if they're going to follow me or not. My critique partner says that all of my books have something in common, and that is basically like a gaping hole of bitterness and despair at the center of them. So we call that the McGinnis. So that's like, that's what, uh, there is a definite Mindy voice through all of them. And that would be, you know, the defining characteristic of them that I hope readers will follow me through the jumps and, uh, you know, come back for that gaping hole of despair that they seem to enjoy. I don't, I don't agree with that. You don't think so? I don't. There is hope. There's hope in all of them. There's hope in all of them. And the stories, maybe if I tried to explain the stories to somebody, it it would come across as, wow, that sounds really depressing. Absolutely. But as I'm reading them, I'm never sitting there going, I need to be listening to Depeche Mode. Sure. (laughs) Like wearing black eyeliner. Like, and, and I think it goes to, to your ability as a writer that, that there isn't this depressing feeling. You're dealing with very serious subjects. Yes, I think of the unflinching realism is probably a better description. 
Right. I think that's a mark of a of a of an excellent writer. I think of Chris Crutcher, who mm-hmm. writes about just the most serious topics, you know, of these these kids. But the books are really funny. They're hilarious. And and, and they're just at times they're light and they're fun. And but when you explain what the story is about to somebody, they just get this look in their face. And I could see yeah. that happening with yours, but I don't see despair because I see hope. Um, and I really do hope uh, a nice pun uh, there uh, <laughs> that, that readers, uh, that the listeners go out and hunt down your books, uh, especially given to the sea, which you said is out April 11th, correct? April 11th. Awesome. Uh, all right. So we've got one more question here. Cool. Uh, it's the standard. I've prepped you for this. Yes. You've probably you've probably thought about this all day. You know, I didn't do my homework at all. <laughs> okay. All right. So here we go. Fine. Uh, <laughs> fantasy dinner party. Gah. You can invite one writer, one actor or actress, one musician, and then just one other person who can be in those in those uh, occupations or anybody. Okay. So so who are you inviting? Living or dead. Or no uh, let's go let's go living. Oh, that really narrows things. Okay, but that's fine. I can do that. I can do that. So my writer would probably be Stephen King. I read his stuff from a very young age, probably too young. I think it formed me in many ways, and I just want to meet him. I mean, yeah. wow. When that's I won the Edgar, too. oh gosh, so badly. Um, when I won the Edgar, he was also up last year for, I believe, short story. And he was ill and he did not attend the Edgar Awards. And this is my this is my everlasting it could have been moment because right. I won and Stephen King would have been clapping for me. Right. And I was like, oh, my God. And I could have been in a picture with Stephen King and he had the stomach flu. Oh. <laughs> this is I will never get over that. OK, so Stephen King, one musician. And I don't. That's a tougher one for me because I don't have anyone that I'm like, yes, absolutely, that person right there. Um, I can't come up with his name off the top of my head. The lead singer for Modest Mouse. Oh, God. Yeah, he's odd. Um, he's a if different you gave me, kind of man. Yeah, if you gave me four names, I could point to it. Hold on. I'm looking it up because I have my computer right in front of me. He's an odd yeah, bird. Modest, he's an odd bird and so fascinating. Isaac Brock. Isaac Brock. There you go. Isaac Brock. That's who I would enjoy meeting because, number one, their lyrics, stunning. Yeah. He has to be a a fascinating person. So Isaac Brock is my musician. Okay. Um, Actor or actress. Gosh, that's tough. Um, I'm going to go with... Who am I going to go with? Oh, Edward Norton. Edward Norton. Oh, okay. Yeah, I could watch that man eat a ham sandwich. <laughs> he is talented. That could be a YouTube channel right there. Oh, Edward Norton eats a ham sandwich. I would tune in every day. <laughs> I have a cat named Norton, and he's named Norton because of that man. And when you have hit the point where you're naming your animals, you, know, you might have a problem. So, I don't know. But yeah, so that that's that. And um, the last one was anyone at all? Yep. They have to be living because I want it to be Jack the Ripper. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Oh, I want it to be Jack the Ripper because I want to know. I want to know who it is. I'll give you that. We can stop there. Give me that because yeah. I think that's. I think that's solid. Yeah. Right. And then Stephen King would love that. Yeah. So that would work I think perfectly that whole with group the dinner would party. Would enjoy that actually. 
Right. Ed Norton would play him in the movie. Yeah. And, and Isaac Brock would write a song about him. Oh, and they it's would a solid all dinner you. party. Perfect. Oh, my goodness. Yes. Nicely done. You can find Mindy online at MindyMcGinnis.com or at her blog, which is writerwriterpantsonfire.blogspot.com. Her latest novel, like I said, is Female of the Species. And in April, uh, April 11th will be the release of Given to the Sea. So seriously, you need to check her out. Inside the Writer's Head podcast is produced by the Public Library of Cincinnati and Hamilton County. Special thanks to the Library Foundation for funding the Writer-in-Residence program. Learn more and read the Inside the Writer's Head blog on our website, cincinnatilibrary.org. Subscribe to this podcast so you don't miss future episodes and leave us a review wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you for listening.